Hey, what's going on? This is your boy, Jay Mace, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get to know with those in the entertainment industry and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. I have with me a legend, a part of the first female R&B pop group to go platinum, and they can all play instruments. Not only was she the founder of this group, she sang, did drums, and she still looks fierce. I didn't yes. say fierce, I say fierce. While doing it, somebody <laughs> slapped me. I have Miss Bernadette Cooper from Climax. Bernadette, thank you for coming on to Beyond the Album Cover. Oh, no problem, Jerome. Happy to Man. be here. Oh, thank you. So how have you been holding up um, due to COVID? You know, I've been preparing for this moment all of my life. I'm a self-proclaimed introvert, so this is, you know, it didn't really bother me as far as being inside the house, but I did lose a few friends, you know. But other than that, I made it through. So thus far, I've made it through, so I'm happy about that. Yeah, condolences to you on the friends that you lost because of COVID. And know for me, I'm an introvert as well, so this has been very fruitful. So we're going to take a journey into your career and climax and solo. So from the beginning, where did your love of music come from and what instrument did you first pick up playing? You know, I've always had a love for music. You know, I was one of those kids that was gravitate that gravitated towards music and you know of course Aretha Franklin being played in every black woman's household you know I listened to the lyrics and that really carved my my love for lyrics and how to write lyrics and make people feel things you know so I would think all of my life I love music and I started off playing the piano oh wow classically trained or by ear by ear you know what I did take lessons and then I realized that I could fake my way through lessons by, <laughs> by, but because I had the gift of playing and I had a great ear, so so I, I had a little bit of both training, but mainly by ear. Okay, and where did the switch come in going to drums? You know, started off with piano, and then my mother remarried, and my stepfather had a drum set, and it was, he set it up in the living room. So every day after school, I would come home and start playing and playing and practicing and practicing, and then you know, I, before you know it, I was playing in the church. And then, you know, I kind of developed an instrument that I enjoyed playing, and my brother helped me out a lot. And, you know, that became my love. I don't know if it was my my love for life, but it definitely was my first love musically. Now, before a climax getting together, did you cut your teeth doing the talent show circuit in and around Southern California? Absolutely. I, had a, I was in a band called Blue Ice with Cornelius Mims. It was, uh, you know, a couple people you wouldn't know, but we, we formed uh, Michael Norfleet. We formed a band called Blue Ice, and we had a guy up front who was James Brown, and of course, I was the girl drummer, so we won every talent show. Wow. And you know, back in the day, that's how a lot of artists cut their teeth, and if you were good, that meant you had something, but if you were terrible, you were getting booed Apollo style. Oh, oh, without, without a doubt, without a doubt. You know, then I started playing uh, drums at Compton. I went to Compton High School. And Compton High School had the Tar Babies, which were their band. So I started playing with the band, and that's when I really was like, okay, this is what I really want to do. Wow. Now, I also read up that once you graduated high school, you went to El Camino College for a minute to study law, but you left to pursue music full-time. Now, what was that like having to make that decision of, I want to do my passion, but at the same time, I got to get a degree and possibly go to 9 to 5 right? You know, I love law. I love it to this very day. I just love it. I used to go to the courtrooms just 
I used to ditch school to go to the courtrooms and sit in and listen to the trials, you know. But I love law, and I was in the pre. I mean, I hadn't started law school yet, but I was doing all the um, classes that you had to take in order to get to that point. And I was in an accounting class one day, and I just realized, you know, I'm not happy here. And I always knew at an early age what what happiness was. That was the goal in life: is to be happy and doing what you wanted to do. And I never wanted to just blend in. So I was sitting in an accounting class one day, and I remember that's the day I said, I made the decision. I said, I, I really want to do music. And so I didn't go the next semester. I, I just checked out, and I started playing in bands. Right. And by playing around in these local bands, was it where you started to pick up the members of Climax, or did you put out like a ad and like a trade to recruit the other members? We're playing, when I started playing with the other bands, that gave me the idea of Climax. You know, it was sort of like, you know, I played with the guys, and then I developed the idea of, of an all-girl band. I said, that would be great to do. And then once I developed the idea, I started to search on how to make that dream a, a reality. And that's when I started to um, put ads in papers and try to see if there were other women or girls at that point like me who were musicians who wanted to be in a girl band. So I went through a series of girls, you know, throughout uh, a couple of years period just grab you know meeting girls performing with them in rehearsals and realizing they want to put the best fit or their boyfriends didn't want them to be in the band or their mothers said they couldn't so finally you know we came upon the girls that are now the members of climax or the, or the members of climax that became popular now how important in putting together the group is finding the personalities to mesh because you can play well all day long but the personality doesn't fit it may not be a good match because you got to look at it from this aspect that you're going to be around these people 24-7, touring, rehearsing, press, and you want somebody that you want to be around. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think that's the reason why a lot of girl bands don't make it because everybody sees it for what it's worth and everybody wants to be a star. There's a lot more to it. You have to have the same vision. I believe in that everybody, the visions have to be quite similar in order to be successful. It's sort of like... If you are uh, opening up a, a business, if you have a clothing line, everybody has to believe in that particular clothing line. Everybody has to be focused on that particular gear and to move forward. But what happens with women is that you get into a band and everybody has different – in the beginning, they have, they, they, they have the same vision, but that thing is everybody's equal in poverty. But once you start becoming successful, the vision changes. Right. And it's funny that you mentioned everybody being on the same page for the vision of the band. I was just recently looking yeah. at the documentary on the Go-Go's, and one of the yeah. members couldn't really fully commit because she was doing the 9 to 5 while the band was still getting off the ground. And she ended up leaving. Another person comes in, and then boom, they had their big success. Yeah. It's a recipe for disaster when everybody is not of one accord. You know, it's a business first, and everybody has to have that same vision. And, you know, or either at some point it starts to divide. And that's what happens with not only just girl groups. It happens with a lot of groups, period, you know. So it's very important that everybody has the same vision. Right. Now, when you guys formed, did you guys cut your teeth performing in and around Southern California doing label showcases before you guys signed the Solar? You know what? I think this was all meant to be, you know, in a very strange way because we didn't do a lot. We did a few things here and there. We did a couple of talent shows. We did a television show. Can't believe remember the name of it, but we did a television show, and it was a competition, and we won. We won a van, I remember. And um, we did a few things, not a lot. 
But, you know, it, once we did those things, we went into the studio, we cut demos, and we started sending those demos out. It just so happened, Solar Records was the first person who contacted us and signed us. Mm-hmm. And for those of you that don't know Solar, Sounds of Los yes. Angeles Records, which yes. was headed by the late Dick Griffey, who had a relationship oh. with Mr. Don Cornelius, and also yes. from the Silvers, Leon Silvers III was the in-house producer of Solar, and you also had work with Otis Stoke and Stephen Shockley from Lakeside, and then also William Shelby from Dynasty. Yes. And yeah. more. And many more, which we will dive into. So 1981, the debut album comes out, Never Underestimate the Power of a Woman. Great title. What was that mindset going in, knowing you got signed, and we're going to in the studio to make this debut album? Complete de- decompobulation. We had no idea what we were walking into. We had no idea what was in front of us. All we were were girls, six girls who wanted to be in a band, who wanted, who played instruments, and we had no idea of um, what was to come. So it was all a learning process for us, and we got in there and, um, you know, started learning how to be in the studio, started learning how to be in the beginning. They had um, guys pretty much telling us, all right, this is the song you're going to sing. You know, and we would do it, but we weren't completely happy with the songs that we were singing because they were all very self-serving. And we were very independent young ladies who were coming into the 21st century, and we didn't really want to sing about, you know, when you come home from work, I'm going to cook your dinner, and, you know, I'm going to rub your back and all that. Not, nothing's wrong with that, but we were a different kind of group that was envisioning a different kind of woman. Right, and how did you guys manage to balance that where we want to be self-contained, write our own lyrics, where as opposed to come in and somebody already handed you the lyric sheet saying, here, sing this. Right. It was difficult in the beginning. We did it, you know, but things started to change when Jimmy and Terry, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis came in to produce and work with us. They right. introduced us to freedom. And, you know, no, no, you guys can do it your way. We want to hear your version of it. This is Bernadette. And they really gravitated to a lot of my writing. They really liked a lot of my writing. And um, they would bring me in, to, you know, to give them lyrical concepts and all of that. And by bringing me in to give them lyrical concepts, the whole concept of of the things we were talking about and singing about began to change because it became more climax. It became more women moving forward in the world, being independent, loving ourselves and loving everybody around us, but loving ourselves first. So that's when the music began to change. Right, and perfect segue to the sophomore album, which came out in 82, Girls Will Be Girls, Wild Girls, Mm -hmm. was the cut that Jimmy and Terry produced. And with this, before they started working on SOS and getting infamously booted from the time? Yeah, I think it was um, all done simultaneously. Somehow um, they were working with SOS and they were working with us, and then they got booted from the time. You know, there's a lot of... There's a lot of uh, stories out there about how they got booted from the time, but they were in the studio when Prince called. They were in the studio with Climax when Prince called and said, you're out of there. He fired them in the studio while we were there. And I remember the vibe of the room and all of that. They said, we just got fired. Oh, well, you know, 
and their career took off after that. Right, and it's funny that we're talking about Jimmy and Terry because I was having a conversation with Mark Gay from Shy, and I feel that a lot of your material, maybe in the back of their minds, was a reference point for Janet when they get with her to do control. Probably so. It's a possibility. Yeah, because it was very female-driven, attitude Sass, I'm not going to take it from no man. And, and you know what? I never thought of it, but you're absolutely right. I think that when Jimmy and Terry, even though Jimmy and Terry had that vibe anyway, I think we all became free once we started working with each other. It probably opened their mind to a new woman. And, you know, it definitely opened our, our mind and working with them and, and understanding and get a taste, getting a taste of freedom uh, as far as um, a writer, producers, and um, musicians. Right. So sitting down with them, was it more of just free talk and whatever came from those conversations, those would be song concepts? Pretty much. I mean, it was pretty much, you know, they would listen, they would hear us, and they would either try to make it better or they would accept what we had, you know. And you you have to understand, we were we were living in the studio. I mean, practically, you know, sleeping in the studio because we were there so much, you know. So our personalities, you know, was pretty much what you hear. Hey, girl, I know I was looking good. Oh, girl, I know the men are part. You know, that's the way we spoke to each other on a daily basis. They pretty much heard the way we spoke to each other, and were, they were like, oh, no. You got to put this on record. And Bernadette, you remind us of Morris. You got to put all that energy on a record because you just like Morris. My attitude was very similar to Morris Day's attitude. So they really loved working with me because of that. Yeah, because I remember in interviews, uh, Jimmy was saying that they they call you Bernadette, like you just yes, said, because you had the same personality as Morris. Yes. Big, outlandish. Everybody yes. knows Bernadette when she walks into the room. Exactly. And this was before I even knew of Morris Day. It's like I knew the time, but I didn't know of their music. I remember them walking into the room and playing 777-9311. I was like, what is that? You know? And then, you know, so it was sort of kind of like... Like we were brothers and sisters from another planet. Right. And Morris, then another Morris and I. Mm-hmm. And then another thing that I would mention too is that when I listen to Climax Records, they always sounded bigger than the record. Because you gotta remember people, this is back in the time when music videos were kind of scarce, so you really had to sell the record. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So nineteen eighty four rolls around. Meeting in the yeah. Lady Room drop, and you guys leave Solar to go to Constellation. So what was the themes behind that move? Well, we didn't really leave Solar. Solar changed into Constellation Records. They did a, a deal with MCA, and they became Constellation Records, and we just followed them. So we were Constellation Records under the umbrella of MCA. The beauty that came out of all of that was Lil Silas Jr. You know, Lil Silas, you know, he was our point person in the beginning. He hadn't made it to an A&R or, or an executive at that point. So Lewis Silas kind of came in, and he was the person who took us around to all of our record, radio station gigs and all our promotional tours. And Lewis Silas became a person that also began to remix all of our songs. And that's when our lives changed, when he took the Menall Pause, which, you know, I wrote with Joyce Irby. When he took the mental pause and he did a remix on that, our lives changed. Right, and that record, big, big hit. Now, when when you guys went over to MCA, did you guys have any interactions with the late, great Mr. Gerald Busby? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he was always in every meeting. Back then, everything was like, you know, it was real. You know, now I don't know how quite how good it is, but you really trusted 
the music, um, um, all the entrepreneurs and all of the executives, um, you really trusted their opinions at that time because they really, truly knew music. So Gerald Busby was one of those guys. Mm-hmm. Now, when you say trusting the execs and their opinions, did you all have any pushback when they brought to you, like, hey, we're going to make this the lead single, and we're like, no, 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 we want this to be the lead, or was it more of like, wherever you say go? The only pushback that I can remember that pops up is when Joyce came into the studio one day and gave me the track for the menopause, you know, and I had a four-track recorder. I laid on the floor in one of the rooms, and I wrote the vocals to the menopause. So we did it, and Joyce heard it. She said, this is a hit. This is a hit. So we took it to Dick Griffey, and we heard it. He goes, oh, no, I'm not going to put out no song about menopause. And we were like, no, no, it's not that. So once we explained it to him and we told him what it really was a play on words and what it really meant, he he fell in love with it. Other than that, no, we pretty much had a great relationship with, with the record company. Okay, and then when you guys out touring, did you have to – turn a lot of naysayers and detractors into believers because when you look at the music industry it still is predominantly dominated by men and you all being an all-female band that a lot of people didn't want to take you guys seriously and look at you guys as a novelty act absolutely it was definitely happening but it never bothered us you know i think when you're you feel you're self-assured and you feel good about yourself things like that kind of rub off your shoulder you know, you show you don't really trip off of it too much. So we had a lot of naysayers. I can remember many times that I've ha- had to deal with men laughing at me because I could they didn't think I could produce or whatever. But I always made a believer out, out of them. And so the climax, we always made a believer out of whoever doubted us. Right. And then meetings in the ladies' room, big hit off of that album written yes. by Boaz Watson along with <laughs> the Callaway brothers from Midnight Star, later of the Callaway duo. And then I believe last year on SNL, Emma Stone parodied meeting in the ladies' room. Oh, yes. And before that, Halle Berry did it. Yeah, it's an interesting story to how meeting in the ladies' room, you know, became the hit that it became. I was at an industry party, and I ran up to um, Reggie Calloway. You know, we were brothers and sisters on, this, on the same label. So whenever we saw each other, we would embrace each other. You know, it was, it was typical. Well, this particular time, he had a new girlfriend. She didn't know who this girl was coming up to him and hugging him. So she tried to start a fight with me, you know, and she goes, we're going to have to have a meeting in the ladies' room. And then Reggie Calloway went home and wrote the song. Wow, that is crazy. And <laughs> the crazy thing about that record, you had guys singing it. Yes. That's a, that's a huge hit. That was one, you know, a, along with I Miss You was one of our biggest hits. Then I'll pause, open up the door to here we are, we come in, it's different, get ready for us. And then here comes meeting in the ladies' room, and then here comes I Miss You. It was a big record for us. We were just kids. Really. We were still kids kind of trying to figure it all out. Well, we didn't know at that point that we we were successful. Right. After a now, long period of no hits. Right. Now, when Lynn came to you all with this beautiful ballad, I Miss You, what was everybody's reaction to it? And did you all try other people on vocals before settling on Joyce for the lead? 
Well, another interesting story. You see, the beauty of the songs back in the day, there was an experience that drove the writing of a particular song. And that particular song, I think I can say it now, you know, because everybody's trying to be quiet about it, but it was beautiful. Lynn Mosby was dating Steve Shockley in Lakeside, the guitarist of Lakeside. And they were going in and out of their relationships. And one day, I guess they had, they broke up. Lynn went and wrote, I miss you in like 10 minutes. You know, she woke up in the middle of the night. She wrote, I miss you. Okay. And they brought my miss you to us and a meeting. And uh, she brought, I miss you. You know, we would have these meetings with Dick Griffey. And she played it. And Dick Griffey was like, I love it, love it, love it. So when we went in to produce it, Lorena was originally supposed to um, sing the song. But either something happened. I can't remember what happened. She didn't show up to the studio or she wasn't able. Something happened. I don't remember. But Joyce was there. And they said, let's try Joyce. So Steve Shockley and Lynn were at the board. And they thought, oh, my God. Steve says, oh, she sounds like Michael Jackson. And that's how it, how her voice got onto the record. Wow, yeah, because once again, I was speaking with Mark Gay from Shine. We were talking about Joyce's voice and how it's very similar to, like you said, Michael and Janet. Very light, yes. very yes. airy, breezy, and smooth. Yes, yes. So that, that was the voice that was on the song. You know, ironically, when you're going into the studio, people don't understand that musicians don't all the time play their own instruments in the studio. They have things where there are people who are better live, and I was one of those. I'll speak for myself. I was a better live drummer than a studio drummer because in the studio you had to focus, you had to stay on time, there was, you know, and I was like, I'd rather go shopping, you know. So they would bring in musicians to play the drums, you know. I was like, bring in the best person who can play the drums better than I, you know. So... But that particular song is one of the only songs that every member of Climax performed on without another person coming in. Wow. So that became our biggest hit. It was mm -hmm. a group effort on that particular song, yeah. Yeah, a big hit. Crossover mm -hmm. pop, R&B, adult contemporary, and it was the third biggest single of 1986. Oh, oh, oh hey, it was an amazing song. Lynn Mosby, oh, that song it was a huge hit for her. And Climax as well. Mm -hmm. Now, you're speaking about writing and producing. How does it work when turning in the paperwork to BMI or ASCAP to figure out who gets what? Like, who gets to split the publishing and the royalties from writing the record? Are you talking about the Climax albums? Because I've produced a lot of different things. Yes, yes, yes. Give the inner workings of how to do proper credits and turning in paperwork to BMI and ASCAP for royalty splits and everything like that. Well, at that particular time, we had people doing that for us. So you would hire someone. We would either hire someone to do it or, you know, people who were a little bit more astute with the business did it, you know, within the group. But it, it was just the similar, you know, you had a person, um, you know, it's a whole long conversation about it. But they usually had people who did it for you either at the record company or um, you, we would hire people to do it. We, we, you know, people kind of knew. If, if I did all the lyrics, that was 100% lyrics. You know, we shared our publishing with Solar Records, so our Constellation Records. So we had 50%, they had 50%. So all that paperwork, it's a big mechanical thing that has to happen. And um, I'm not even as, you know, refreshed on the new way to do it right now. So it's difficult to say. Right. And for those of you yeah. that don't know, songwriting, that is where your bread and butter is, especially if you have a record that still gets airplay or a Christmas record, for that matter. Oh, you can oh, do absolutely. that and you can still make money. Listen, what do they call it, in perpetuity? 
That means you make money for the rest of your life. Your kids, their kids, their kids, their kids. Whoever wrote, we wish you a Merry Christmas. Whoever wrote Happy Birthday, their great-great-grandchildren are living in Beverly Hills right now because those songs generate millions of dollars every year. Every time, every December, we wish you a Merry Christmas probably generates a million or two million dollars for them. So it's, songwriting is very important. But you also have to be very smart as far as the publishing side of it. And really, and I don't mean keep your publishing. I mean, you know, you got to be business and, you know, sometimes you have to sell a portion of it so someone will work your catalog. For someone would say, hey, I have a song written by John Brown, you know, would you put this in your movie? Otherwise, it just sits there. So it's a whole game that needs to be played, and then you have to be very, very smart about it. Mm -hmm. Now, when you guys went out touring, were there acts that the labels always paired you up with, or was it more of, okay, so-and-so is out on the road here, let's put you guys here, and then hop on with this group over in this part of the country to tour? In the beginning, it was Solar Tours. You know, we went out with all the Solar acts. You know, Dick Griffey put out, a, you know, it was Midnight Star. I mean, everybody started popping off at the same time. Midnight Star, Shalimar had already had hit. It was Midnight Star, it was Lakeside, Fantastic Voyage. So we started hitting like one year after another. So we all went out on a Solar Tour in the beginning. And then later on, we started, you know, going out with other acts. Mm, did you do any tours with the deal? Yeah, I, I do believe we did. I do believe we did, yes. Yeah, because I think they were signed to Solar at the time when they put out the Body Talk album, Material Things. Oh, oh absolutely. I'm, on, I'm, I'm on that album. I'm on one of the songs. Yeah, that's where Jim, that's where um, L.A. and Babyface came from, the deal. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah, what was that definitely. like for you seeing that up close with L.A. and Babyface and then seeing what they became as songwriters and producers working with everybody and then launching the face? You know what? Here's an interesting story. I remember, you know, when I first started, you know, I was, you know, hanging out with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. And then, you know, I started hanging out with L.A. and Babyface, and I started hanging out with them, and they asked me to be a part of their team during that time. And I was like, no, I don't want to be a part of your team. I want to do my own thing, you know, which wasn't a bad decision. It was my decision, you know, but they went on to do great things, you know, so... We were all a family. We were all very, very cool. Right. And the one thing that I found interesting about Jimmy and Terry was when I was watching the Black Godfather documentary on Netflix about Clarence Avant, that when Ellie and Babyface were getting their feet wet as producers, they made the connection to bring them to Mr. Avant. And I found that cool yeah. that we're at the top of our game. But we're not going to hoard the secrets. We're going to make sure that you are in the loop, in the know, so that you can have success, too. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I remember Clarence Avon was a big part of, of – Clarence Avon was a big part of everybody's life at that time, behind, very behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And from North Carolina, I'm originally from North Carolina, and he grew up in New Jersey. If you know Bill Withers, Sherelle, oh. Alexander oh, O'Neill. Yeah. Dennis Coffey, everything that came out of Suspect and Taboo Records, Clarence Avon mm -hmm. had his hands all in it. Oh, yes, absolutely. Behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely yeah. very revered, definitely somebody you don't want to mess with. And same thing exactly. about um, Don Knizz, because I know a lot of people who used to dance on the show, and they said that Don Knizz did not play no games. 
Oh, listen, Don Cornelius gave me the stare, that stare many times when I was late coming to the stage or whatever. Don Cornelius, he, Cornelius did not play. He was, he was a, um, an interestingly uh, haunting guy, if I could say. He's a little scary because he was very serious about his business, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a lot of dancers I knew said once he walked into the room, all the plans stop. You straighten up real quick. Oh yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And you guys also did BET. So what was that like going on and doing press for BET with Donnie Simpson? And then reflect on briefly BET's legacy since the network turns forty this year. You know, it was great going on to BET. I remember Donnie Simpson. I did it. I did it with Tina Marie. You know, and um, we did a lot of different shows. I, you know, you're taking me down back to memory lane, so I got to go back and think about it. But um, did I answer? Your yes, 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 yes. Very well, very well. And shout out to BET. Happy 40th. Now, you fought oh, this that's group. That's what you said. Happy 40th, BET. I knew it was something yes. in there. Yes. yes, happy 40th. So now, you fought this little group by the name of Madam Max. And they had a single, mm-hmm. Just That Type of Girl, which got heavy mm-hmm. airplay on BET. What was the process behind putting them together and that single? I left Climax at some point. I left Climax and I wanted to really pursue more production and doing a lot of things. That's before I did my solo album. But um, Sylvia Rohn found out that I had left Climax and she wanted to work with me. So I said, hey, I have an idea, concept for a three-girl group. Because I was really, you know, my focus was all really always about trying to find out what opening there is, what's not happening at this particular moment, what can we do into the industry that can make a difference. And during that time, there wasn't a three-girl group. I remember thinking, there's, we need something, a three-girl group that's magical. So I started putting, you know, Sylvia signed the concept. She didn't even have the girls. And then I found the girls later, and then I put the project together and mm-hmm. delivered it to her. And right. Just That Type of Girl was the first single. Right, and this is when Sylvia was at Atlanta? Yes, Atlanta Records. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that you mentioned Atlanta. I'm going to fast forward a bit. When you put out your solo album in 1990, drama according to Bernadette Cooper, you had Chucky Booker on that album. Oh, Chucky and I know each other from church. We went to Greater St. Paul Church of God in Christ. Chucky was younger than I, but Chucky had a crush on me. And his mother was the choir director, Celestine Booker, who's better than Chucky. Celestine was, you know, she could write, she could play, and she was also an inspiration to me because I didn't know a woman could do all of those things. So I used to watch her a lot. But Chucky Booker and I, we already knew each other. So as things started to progress with both of us and our lives, you know, it was easy for me to pick up the phone and call him and have him come to the studio and play. Wow. And I'm going to give you a little backstory about Chucky because I had a chance to interview Chucky. He told me okay. that Turned, Turned Away was originally supposed to go to Truth. Yes, yes. But what ended up happening was he played it for Sylvia, and Sylvia told him, nope, this is going on your album. Try to convince him yep. it was a Truth record. She wouldn't budge. And when he told yep. Truth this, they were like, we want a record similar, and boom, spread my wings. Exactly. Chucky right. is a bad boy. Yes, but, he is. But, you know, he got it from his mother. I just want to say that because Celestine Booker was such an inspiration in my life. He got his mother. It's incredible. He got it from his mother. Love you, Chucky. Love you, Celestine. Mm-hmm. And then another quick sidebar, also, production on the Attitude album was done by 
a young producer by the name of Dallas Austin. And I kind of wow. say this to where Climax inadvertently helped usher in the New Jack Swing era because Joyce was doing her solo record, had Hey Mr. DJ with Dougie Fresh, and that was produced by Dallas Austin. So did you kind of have an inkling that Dallas was going to blow up and be the super producer that he was? Well, to Joyce's credit, Joyce found Dallas Austin. You know, she actually went to his neighborhood she found Dallas Austin before anybody else knew him, and she signed him to her production company. Through her signing him, he became popular because she started getting him gigs with all these different people. And worked, then, of course, you know, he, put, he worked on her project, and then, you know, things happened in life, and he left her company. It was a big, major thing. You know, she could probably tell you more about that, but he ended up leaving her, which they do often, started spreading his own wings. Right. Hint, hint, wink, wink. So he did, of course, Motown Philly for Boyz Men, TLC, yep. Madonna, list goes on and on. And also yes. Joyce also discovered Sammy and Lloyd. Yes, she did. Right. So for you having that eye of putting together groups, what to you is the main ingredient that you know whether a group or an artist is going to stick or not. Stick or not? You, well, that, I can't, that right there. I can only do a recipe of what I use of putting them together, but sticking together, once again, I go back to the same vision, the same love, the, you know. And a, a lot of and a lot of times, everything is not meant to stay together forever. People, oh, you guys should still be together, such so as Climax. No, we shouldn't have. It was, we just move on, you know. Maybe we could have lasted another year. Mm -hmm. So putting together groups and things. But I would say there's no recipe, but as far as their own individual talent, like one, this one girl who could, you know, sing, put those kind of groups together. So they're, they're not stepping on everybody's toes. Mm -hmm. It's definitely yeah. easier said than done. Now I want to back up a minute and they just re-released Sign of the Times. How big of an influence was Prince on you? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Prince was a big influence on everybody. Everybody. You know why? It's because he represented musical freedom in every aspect, you know? And freedom to even be, you know, he pretty much took his concept from a lot of the, the white boys and a lot of the rock stars and the David Bowie's and, you know, and the Mick Jackers who were very free in pop music and in rock music. But we didn't have that kind of freedom in R&B music. Most of R&B artists come from the church. You go on there, you put on your suit or your outfit and you do the, But Prince represented freedom to talk about sexuality to cross the borderlines of sexuality as far as a lot of guys started wearing makeup and hairdos and all of that. And the music changed. Everybody's music changed. It became more sexually free, more humanly free. You know, he so appreciated, oh, he changed me in many, many ways. He allowed me to write whatever I wanted to. I felt like I wanted to write with no exception. Right. And I believe that when he was recording at Paisley, he had it wired for sound everywhere because you never know when the inspiration struck. And he always had a rule with his engineer, Susan Rogers, keep the tape going. You know, he was a studio rat. Yes. You know, there are very few people who are put on this earth to do exactly that. And you know those, the Michael Jacksons, the Sam Cooke, Jimi Hendrix, you know, Little Richard, Michael Jackson, Prince. These people were put on this earth for that purpose only because people have their missions in life and music was definitely their mission. So I miss him. I miss them all very, very much.
they were all of them were an inspiration to me. Mm-hmm. And another big thing that Prince did for the music industry was he was preaching do for yourself, be independent at a time when it wasn't popular. He scrawled slave on his face because Warner Brothers was telling him, hey, you can't use your birth name. We own it. But he's like, how are you going to tell me I can't use my own name to sell something? So he decided, I'm going to turn it into this symbol and I'm going to put all my stuff out online and you can't tell me what to do. Who would have thought? You know what I mean? Who would have thought of that? You know, and who would have been bold enough to get out and do that? And, you know, since him, look how many other artists are doing that, you know, in mm-hmm. some way, some form of fashion. Right. So how do you feel now with everything at artist's disposal because of the Internet? The younger artists are coming into the industry now more business savvy, knowing point structure, knowing mechanical royalties and the ins and outs where you literally almost back then had to get that Donald Passman book or go to somebody that has an internet entertainment law degree to find out yes i mean you know it's a new world it's a new world and a lot of people got left behind because they they don't get it you know even i i stumble because it's so new but i'm trying to open my mind and i'm learning all the time on the next on the, the things to do you know just so happens that um you know i'm a legendary artist you know i'm a legend artist in the sense of when i say that I've been here before. I've done it since the 80s. So putting my music out as a little people, people know my name. But if you're not an artist, you're just me to put it out. But then you got to go through the promotion. Then you got to do the publishing. Then you got to do the merchandising. There's a lot of other things that usually we're used to record companies doing for us. Mm-hmm. Whereas now you pretty much do it yourself because I look at what Tyler, well, yeah, I look I at what Chance the Rapper did to where he was putting out crazy numbers without the backing of a label. And he kept all of the profits. Oh, yes. That's great. Mm, That's it's great. I think a great time. Definitely yes, a great time to be an artist. I, I, I think it's a wonderful time to be an artist. You know, I think it's a very wonderful time. You know, people look at it, and you know, of course, the, the record companies are not doing as well, and they're trying to figure it out. Everybody, but we're in a place of everybody's trying to figure it all out. You know, and as soon as we get to that comfortable place, it's going to change again. Mm-hmm. And do you think that the companies are still trying to figure it out because they were still eating half the hog off of record sales and then take into account that, hey, this new digital age is coming and we better get with it. Yes, of course. But what it has done is it's made them not look at artistry as much as they used to do back in the day. Now it's about who are you and do you have a similar sound to somebody else's so we can make some money because we, we've lost a lot of money in this whole process. So they're not really looking very seldom are they looking for like major your artist that they can keep and develop because they believe they're going to be something. You have to be it now. And that's the difference. Back in the day, yeah, they developed you. Yeah, and also, if you weren't ready to go out to the masses right then and there, they would sign you to what was called an artist development deal where they would put you to work, do club dates, training so that you could be ready by the time they felt that you were good and ready. Oh, yes. Now it's kind of, you better come ready. And if you don't sell that first album next, and we as a people, we're so vastly talented that, you know, if there's one, here comes another one, you know. And then you find that in the pop world, they gravitate onto their artists. When they have an artist who can sing like Adele, she's like a goddess. 
<laughs> you know, because it's not very often that a Kelly Clarkson or a woman like her comes along. So they grab onto their artists and they develop them. Even in country music, they grab onto their artists and they develop them. But we're a dime a dozen because we're so vastly talented. Another one is at the church. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I yeah. definitely agree. So what was your take on when New Jack Swing was starting to come into play? Because if you think about it, before Teddy, I think Full Force kind of laid the groundwork for what was to come with Teddy. It was R&B and rap didn't meet. They didn't mix. But when Teddy came out with Make It Last Ever by Keith Sweat, it was a game changer. So what was that like for you seeing this new, young, brash form of R&B coming in, mixing in with hip-hop? You know, you know, I, you know, it was all new to everyone. And that was during the time when bands were starting to fade out. And we were a band. So me leaving prior to New Jack City was a year or so before New Jack City. We had phased out as a group called Climax or any bands pretty much begin to phase out right about that time. So I don't even think I had an opinion other than confusion of what to do next because that was a new form, a whole new concept. And, you know, we, we just had to take a little time and try to, I just had to take a little time and try to figure it out. So I don't think I really had an opinion other than what next. What do, what do I do in my my life next? And also on your solo album, you had Lenny Kravitz on there, correct? Yes. Lenny and I were friends, and he came and played. There's a song on my solo album called Let's Be Discreet About It. If you go to my solo album, Let's Be Discreet About It, that's Lenny Kravitz on the guitar. On the guitar, yeah. Wow. And the one thing that I appreciate about music from the 80s and 90s is that no matter the genre, it was very diverse. You guys, Luther, Anita, Sade, Freddie, Jackson, Prince, Michael Jackson, Tina Marie, Rick James, it was like you could just turn down the dial on your radio station. You could hear a wide mix of music that was all very good. Oh, all of it was very good. It was a wonderful time. You know, I look back and I'm just proud to have been a part of it all, you know, because nowadays it doesn't really compare now, you know, but back in the day, you know, me being able to call up Tina Marie and say, come over, we smoke a joint, and we we do music or hang out, it, it doesn't happen that way as much anymore. You know, artists are very different these days. Mm-hmm. Now, did you have any pre-show rituals that we, you would used to do before going on stage, like, maybe pray or you know find a way to get into your zone before you hit that stage well as an individual i'm a walker i'm walking and talking to myself walking around in circles talking to myself like a crazy person but as a group you know we would we would pray we would hold hands forget about the arguments that we had during the day and we would just go on you know our mission was to go on, you know, that very competitive nature. If you watch Princess, Princess, what's the name of the movie Prince did? Purple Rain. If you watch Purple Rain and you saw it and you noticed the competition between, you know, Morris's band, and that was the vibe during those days. It was competitive, but it was a good competition. But that's the vibe that Climax would have. We're going to go out and slay. We're going to make them a believer that girls can play instruments, that girls are great performers. So when we went out, we went out to slay. Mm-hmm. And that is when you know you're super good where you have the act that comes on after you to say, I don't want to touch that stage. Oh, yes. Oh, no, we would mark our territory every time. And we purposely did it. We talked about it. Okay, we got to go out. We got to do this. We got to do this. You know, this is what we're going to do.
to do. Okay, I'm going to fall down, and Joyce, you're going to catch me and pull me back up. You know, we would come up with concepts to make the show better. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of people know that putting together a stage show takes work because you want to be entertained as the consumer because you're paying your hard-earned money to see so-and-so perform. Anybody can perform to attract but it takes more to put together a full show. Oh, absolutely. And I'm a strong believer in these people are coming out, paying their money. They want to see a show. They don't care about anything else. And, you you know, they're entitled to a good show. So I've always been, I want to give you fashion. I want to give you changes. You know, I want to give you some hills that you're going to like. I want to give you things that you like. Even if I have to step out of my self for a minute, you owe that to your consumer. Mm-hmm. Now, was there an act that you never got the tour with but wish you did? No, no. I can't think of an act. Now, over in Europe, what was your take on the whole Brit Soul movement that came over to the U.S., such as Loose Ends, 52nd Street, Soul to Soul? Oh, it was great. You know, I was in London for a while. I went there for a few months and hung out and stayed there just to get hold of the music scene and to find new talent. And that's when I got a hold of and I learned a lot about Jamiroquois. He was just coming out during that time, you know. And I was right in the thick of it all. So I enjoyed it and I learned a lot when I went there. And, you know, so I I really enjoyed it all. Omar, Jamiroquois, all of them were really happening and pumping there. So I really love the music. Yeah, I'm definitely a big fan of all the R&B and pop that came out of the UK. But when I was looking at old episodes of Top of the Pops, for those of you that don't know, that's the UK's version of American Bandstand. While Mm -hmm. this guy was huge here in America, he was bigger in the UK. Terrence Trent Darby, his album, The Hardline According, Flawless. Yes, yes. But you know what? I appreciated and loved Omar better when he was just a U.K. artist. Because when he came over here, they tried to make him more Americanized, and we lost a lot of the substance of his music when he came to America. My, mm-hmm. That's my opinion. Right. So do you think that there's a difference as opposed to when you're trying to work an artist in another territory where what works in America may not work in the UK or Canada or in certain country here? Well, the situation is different, you know, we can't really generalize, you know. I'm surprised that the record that I just put out is doing so well in the UK. I, I never would have thought that, you know, so, but you just never know. There's really no formula. There's no formula these days. It's kind of like it's all fate and it's all good music. The thing about it, you just put it out and whatever you put it, put it out, you just make sure it's remarkable. And just, at least if it's remarkable, if it doesn't do anything, you feel good about it. You didn't put out crap. Mm-hmm. Now, tell us about Climax, The Diva, and The Turntable. Oh, I developed that because... I was getting a lot of calls from the clubs and things that didn't really have the budget to afford me. You know, taking a band on the road is very expensive, you know. So they were like, oh, we can't afford you. So I said, you know what, I don't want to turn down people, you know. My love is in the music of it all. So I had to develop a way to make this work. I developed Bernadette Cooper, Diva in a Turntable, which consists of me going out with my DJ, which is DJ Karma Camille, and sometimes a couple pieces of instrumentation 
presentation, maybe a drummer, more likely a drummer because I love the feel of a live drummer, and maybe a bass player or something, and a singer. It's a smaller version of a Climax show or a Bernadette Cooper show without all the extra back line. It's much more affordable. Right, and you definitely get that intimate feel where it's not a whole lot. You can really sit and really focus on the show. And I love the intimacy of that. I love that circle where my audience is right there. And, I, you know, if I had a cocktail and I could reach out and touch and I could talk and I could perform, I love that. So even a turntable serves me well with doing that. But the band concept does, too. I love a great band as well because I'm not so stifled to a track or I can kind of change my show and be spontaneous when I'm with the band mm. more than a diva and a turntable concert. Mm. And we mentioned earlier your new record, Believe in Us, which is garnering big buzz across the pond in the UK. How did that track come about? Wow. Uh, are you familiar with Ocean Lottie? Name rings a bell. Okay. Ocean Lottie is really popular in the UK. He has his own label as well. He's amazing. He's a DJ and he, he's many things. He's a DJ, he's a producer, he's a writer. He's the magic man, you know, in the UK. And he reached out to me. We had been in connected with each other many times via uh, the internet and he reached out to me he said I have a track that I want you to do something with so I said all right send it to me he sent me the track and I listened to it I'm like oh okay okay so I left it alone for a day or two and then I said okay let me see what I can do with this so I went back listened to it put it up in my studio and I'm like uh okay okay so actually I came up with a few things I really wasn't like happy with it but it was like um, you, you never know. So I sent it to Ozan Lottie, and he goes, no, I want more of you. I want more of you as a deceased. I want you to talk, you know, what you do. I want you to do what you do on this particular song. So I'm like, okay, freedom, freedom. You know, I love freedom. Because sometimes when you get you work with other artists, you feel like you're kind of like, they, they have a certain concept in mind. But he was saying, do what you do. So I worked on it a little bit more, and when I sent it back to him, he said, I love it. I'm not changing a thing. This is great. I absolutely love this. So after that, we went through his record label. We did a little deal, went through his record label, and the song became what it came. Yeah. Now, will there be an album to boot, or is that still up in the air? Absolutely. I have an, actually another single coming out in November. Probably we're setting it up in November. It'll probably be more heard in January after everybody's back from vacation. But there's a single coming out, and Osamadi and I are working on an EP together. Okay. All right. So we're definitely looking forward to that. And when it's all said and done, what do you want the leg your legacy and the legacy of Climax to be? Because like I said earlier, you guys are the first R&B and pop group females to go platinum and to play all instruments. And I can't say no more with all that well, you guys have accomplished. We've accomplished a lot. You know, and I think we should get a little bit more glory for it, but I don't know. I don't I don't understand why the women aren't gravitating and, you know, with a lot of these award shows and, you know, Climax did it, you know. But as far as Climax is concerned, Climax did it. Now I'm focusing on Bernadette Cooper, just going back to the basics, and that the basics would be me and doing what I do and kind of like going with my vision full force. And I'm just focusing on that and kind of doing that and putting out more music. Listen, as a young girl, as a Digo child, you know, I always knew my mission was music. Now, you, when a person has a mission like that, 
not everything comes, everything is wonderful in their lives. You know, you see Michael Jackson and Prince, you know, very big, but not everything is always wonderful. But I was willing to sacrifice whatever because I wanted to do music. That's what I wanted to do. And even leaving and leaving this earth and my legacy left behind, you know, it, it will be of music. I want to continue touring. I want to continue putting out great music, you know, now kind of focusing on, on my demographics, putting out music, but then sharing my my experiences on this earth, you know. So when I leave, that's what I want to leave as, just a legendary Bernadette Cooper who did it, did it her way, and it was remarkable. And the best is still yet to come, and she oh, is still yes. fierce. Yes, 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 yes. While doing it. Well, thank you. So do you have any shout-outs you want to give before we conclude this interview? Plug your social Um, and also where can folks get the single? um, The single is everywhere. I mean, you can go to whatever musical platform, streaming platforms, and buy them. You know, you can always reach me on Instagram. It's Bernadette Cooper Official on Instagram. And I think I'm Bernadette Cooper in the number two on Facebook. And I'm on Twitter. I'm sure you could just Google me and find out. And, um, you know, all is good. All right. And you can find this interview on all major streaming platforms. Just search Beyond the Album Cover and YouTube.com, YouTube slash J85. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only legendary Miss Bernadette Cooper right here on Beyond the Album Cover. Bernadette, thank you so very much for doing this interview. Thank you, Joelle. Thank you very much.